Thank you, Taylor and James and Clay. How do you follow that, huh? I've been waiting for that all morning. I, I realize this may not fit your image of me, but I love the electric guitar, <laughs> especially when it's turn of the glory of God. <laughs> so when it's turn to the glory of God like that, it just fills my heart with joy, just redeems all that stuff out of my rock and roll past, you know. <laughs> so we turn to the Word now after that. Uh, if you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn to the Gospel of Mark. We are in chapter 4. If you're visiting with us, glad to have you this morning. We are working through a study on uh, what Jesus did, what He said, what He taught, as uh, shown to us through the eyes of John Mark in the Gospel of Mark, and we have worked our way up to uh, chapter 4. While you're turning there, let me just reflect on the Christmas season. You know, Christmas and the season of Christmas is one of those unique seasons for the proclamation of what Mark calls the Word. What's the Word? The Word is that good news that God loves us. That good news that God loves us so much that He sent His own Son into the world to live among us. The good news that in Jesus we see God revealed to us what God is like, how God desires to have a relationship with us. And the good news, the word of the good news, that through His Son, through His sacrifice of Himself, we can be forgiven of our sins and our rebellion against God, and we can enter into a relationship with peace with God. We can become part of God's family, His children. Now, that word is proclaimed at Christmas. Maybe not in all that fullness, but in little ways, in big ways, in subtle ways, in overt ways. That word is proclaimed at Christmas maybe more than any other time of the year. It's proclaimed in what we hear at Christmas. Think of the Christmas carols. In little and big ways through the Christmas hymns, the Word is proclaimed. It's proclaimed if you go to a Christmas pageant, you see a slice of that. It's proclaimed if you go and you see Handel's Messiah, and you hear in all that beautiful music, you hear the Word proclaimed. Behold the Lamb of God, King of kings and Lord of lords. We hear it proclaimed. We see it proclaimed at Christmas. Not every Christmas card you get, but some Christmas cards have, in one way or another, a little proclamation of the Word. We we see it in, in nativity scenes, at least a little piece of it. So the Word is proclaimed at Christmas, and there are, perhaps during the Christmas season, there are millions of people who maybe the rest of the year they have no connection with church, they have no uh, place or realm or sphere where they are open to the message of Christmas and Christianity, but they, they hear it, they receive it, they, they are, it's proclaimed to them. Now, you can think of people, you can think of relatives you'll, you'll be with, you can think of co-workers that you're going to be with at, at uh, work Christmas parties, you can think of neighbors that you might see during Christmas to whom the Word is proclaimed. And, and, and maybe you think like I think, well, you know, most people, they hear the Christmas message and it just goes right over them. Or they embrace only the very shallow parts of Christmas. And, and, and you're right, but still the Word is proclaimed. 
what determines whether the word that is proclaimed at Christmas is going to take root in a person's life or not? Why does it take root in some and not others? Well, that brings us right to where we are in the gospel of Mark with the parable of the sower and the soils. And of course, the truth of this parable, it's certainly true during the Christmas season, but it's not just true during the Christmas season. It's true during all seasons and in all situations in which one way or another God's Word is proclaimed. So let's look. We started this parable last week, but let's look again. An overview of this parable, verses 2 through 9, is the parable itself, the basic elements of the parable that Jesus spoke to the crowds. Verses 10 through 12 are his statement privately as disciples, why he speaks in parables. And by the way, we looked at that last week. If you missed that and you want to pick that up, you can listen to the sermon online. And then verses 13 through 20 are the parables interpretation, how what Jesus explains about what it means and what it says to us that he explained to his disciples. So let's jump right in. This morning I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible, one of my favorite translations of the Scriptures, and I'll jump in right at verse 3. Listen, Jesus says, consider the sower who went out to sow. Now Luke records this, this parable as well, and Luke records what it is that the sower sowed, which we might just infer, but he went out to sow seed. So let's just get real basic here. What is a sower? A sower is a man or a woman who scatters seed. And they don't scatter seed just purpose, without any purpose. They do it intentionally. They scatter seed with the intention that that seed would take root and grow something. That's what's behind the intention of a sower. Notice here, Jesus doesn't identify himself as the sower. I mean, he could, he could have said, I go out and I sow seed. But he didn't. Well, Jesus certainly did sow seed. He certainly is the model of what a sower is. He certainly is the example of a sower. But I think he left it indefinite both for his disciples then and for those of us who follow him now because he wants to see this applies to us as well. In fact, the, the, the verb there, to sow, is actually in the present tense, which what does that mean? It's a continuous action. In other words, sowing isn't a one-time thing, and it wasn't done just in Jesus' day, in Jesus' earthly ministry. He wanted his disciples then to continue this sowing, following his model as example. And he wants us today, those of us who follow him as his disciples today, to continue following his model in his example of sowing. So the task of sowing for you and me, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, it continues. It is to be a continual action until Jesus Christ returns. But what happens when we sow the seed? What happens when we proclaim the Word in little ways or big ways? Well, that's the rest of the parable. Look at verse 4. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Now, before we go to the interpretation, let's, let's get the picture in our mind. The path, or some of your versions may say by the road, but the path is the better translation. Think of a, a field where wheat or something else is grown, and then think of people cutting across that field, you know, and wearing down a path. I grew up in a neighborhood with a big circular drive. Everybody's house is on a huge circular drive, maybe 40 houses 
And uh, in the middle of it were some lots that I assume were owned by somebody, but nothing was built on there yet. So guess what? As kids was the fastest way to get to your friend's house on the other side of the circle. It was to cut across that field. And of course, you know, we we take the, the most direct route. And what did that mean? That these paths got worn into the field over time. And what happens when you have all these kids running on these paths back and forth? It packs down the soil. And that's, that's the picture here. It's a field that at some point is going to be plowed up. So the whole field is going to be intended to grow with a crop. But before that happens, there have been paths worn into the soil by people, again, maybe getting to the next village or to their neighbor or somewhere else. They take the shortest route and they go across that field. So was the sower careless? Was he sowing it somewhere where there's no way the seed is going to have any, uh, any way of taking root? No, the sower knew at some point that soil would be plowed up. And when it's plowed up, the seed would go down into the soil. So it was very intentional even to sow seed on the path. But what happened? Before the seed could be plowed into the soil, what does he say? The birds came and ate it up. A flock came and and gobbled up that seed. So Jesus gives us the interpretation in verse 15. These are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word sown in them. What kind of response to the proclamation of the Word is Jesus describing here? Well, I think you can infer some of this, that the, the, the soil of the path is, is so hard-packed from the traffic of people walking back and forth across it that that seed can't penetrate. That can be like our hearts. Our hearts can become hardened like those paths so that the truth of the Word, when we hear it, or we see it, or we read it, it doesn't penetrate it. So it never takes root. And when we're hardened to the Word, when, when, when it falls, or we hear it, uh, it, there is a hardness of the soil of our hearts. Satan comes, he says, and takes it away. Now, we see this clearly in the lives of unbelievers, but it happens in believers' lives too. Let me cover the unbelievers first. Paul gives us a picture of this in 2 Corinthians 4.4. He says that the God of this age, that's Satan, and his demonic forces, they blind the, the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. That's that action of, of Satan like those birds picking up, eating up the seed, the proclamation of the Word. How does Satan and his demonic forces blind unbelievers? When you, when you, uh, when you give somebody a tract or you, you tell somebody something that's part of the gospel proclamation or they hear Handel's Messiah or whatever it may be, how is it that they're blinded? Well, they can be blinded by um, their emotional defenses. And maybe their emotional experiences growing up and, and, and the way they're looking to feel kind of, kind of is this, this veil over their ability to see the truth. They can be blinded by intellectual defenses. Maybe it's what they've learned and maybe it's what they've constructed through their education that, that somehow becomes this veil that Satan allows or shrouds over the eyes of their heart. They can be blinded by distractions. 
C.S. Lewis wrote this wonderful book. If you've not read it, you should. It's called The Screwtape Letters, and it's this imaginary conversation between a senior demon and his nephew, who is a junior demon, who is assigned to a particular human being. And in one of the opening chapters, it describes a situation that, that is very common, that uh, this could be, uh, this could be, this is probably seen over and over again about how unbelievers are blinded to the proclamation of the Word. Imagine a man who, who has no interest in the things of God or the gospel, but he comes across a passage in, in a book that he's reading that somehow begins to show him a little bit about the gospel. And for the first time, he becomes interested and he starts to read that. And there maybe for a moment is this opening in his heart to hear the word. But what does Satan do? Satan, through his demons, plants the idea. Lewis writes that you're hungry. It's almost lunchtime. You're hungry. And so he thinks, oh yeah, I'm hungry. I'm, I'm hungry. You know, I'm going to go get some lunch, and then I'll come back, and I'll finish this passage and, and think about its implications. And so he, he goes out, he sets the book down, and he, he goes out, and as soon as he goes out to the street, the demons point out all the distractions and make his thoughts go every which way, and that's the last he thinks of it. That's those birds. That's those eating up the seed that falls on a hardened heart. But it's not just unbelievers who can have hardness of heart when the Word is proclaimed. Believers can develop hardness of heart. Or let me make this more personal. I can develop hardness of heart. You, if you're a follower of Jesus, can develop hardness of heart. Look at Hebrews 3.13. The writer of Hebrews is writing to people who claim faith in Jesus Christ. And he says this to people who are part of a church, part of a congregation, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin in our lives can deceive us. And being deceived, it it hardens the soil so that when we do hear the word that we need to hear, we can't receive it. We can be hardened by the deceitfulness of our sinful desires, our sensual desires, our material desires, can, that can deceive us and therefore harden us. We can be hardened by the deceitfulness of independence. You know, I really want to steer the ship of my life. You know, I don't like what God says about uh, this in a relationship or this in, in what I do with my finances and possessions. I want to make those decisions. And, and perhaps the preeminent one, we can be hardened by the deceitfulness of pride. Pride and subtle and not-so-subtle ways is probably the one that deceives us the most and hardens us. So the seed of the Word will not penetrate our hardened hearts when they're hardened. And it is only by the grace of God that that can change. God and His grace can be like the plowman and plow up the hardened soil of our hearts and Generally, he does that through, through hard experiences, through difficult, painful experiences in our lives. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're here this morning, and you are going through something relationally, financially, health-wise that is so difficult right now. And it may be that God and His goodness is using those difficult circumstances and the pain of that to plow up the hardened surface of your heart that has been resistant to truth that He wants you to hear. 
So God can plow up in an unbeliever's life, but in a believer's life as well. God can be like that plow that plows up the hardness of our heart. The next part of the parable we see in verse 5, other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it sprang up right away since it didn't have deep soil. Rocky soil, what's Jesus describing there? It's ground where there's only a thin layer of soil, of dirt, that's covering a layer of rock, probably limestone, given that area of the world. So uh, unless that limestone is punctured, unless it is deeply plowed, that ground, that soil is going to be too shallow for a plant to sink any roots down to get to that deep subsoil moisture that it's going to need to survive. So it'll sprout, it'll immediately spring up, and there'll be leaves maybe and green above the surface, but there's going to be no development of a root system that it, it needs. And, and Jesus gives the interpretation of this in verse 16. These are the ones sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. What does that look like? You know, maybe it looks like immediately receiving it with joy. Maybe that describes what feels like to us an emotionally exhilarating experience. You know, maybe an experience where there's tears. It may be an experience where there's enthusiasm. It may be where there is an intensity of emotions. It may be a walking of the aisle or, you know, throwing the log and the fire at that, that retreat experience. And there's nothing wrong with emotion, but what Jesus is warning us here is that an emotionally exhilarating experience is not enough by itself. He's warning that if our faith doesn't go deeper than that, we're we may have that green, we may have the emotion, but, but there's no root system that, that we need to get down to the moisture of the truth of God that we need to sustain us. And he goes on to explain what this looks like in verse 6. When the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it didn't have a root, it withered. Because it didn't have a root, it, it couldn't reach the deep subsoil moisture. And it needed that moisture because when the sun came up and the heat of that sun beat down on it, without that access to that subsoil moisture, that plant was going to wither and die. And Jesus describes in verse 17 how this happens to many of us. They have no root in themselves. They are short-lived. When affliction or persecution comes because of the Word, they immediately stumble, fall away. So he relates, notice this, this is not just, you know, the hard things that generally happen to us in life. He relates the heat of the sun to affliction or persecution that we encounter because of the Word, because of the cost of following Jesus. When we were worshiping last Sunday around the world in the southwest province, uh, Sichuan province, of China, there was a group of believers who make up early rain covenant church. And that night as they finished worship at about 6 p.m., the Chinese authorities, the police descended upon the church and they arrested the pastor, Wang Yi, and his wife and put them in criminal detention. And they rounded up the deacons and they rounded up a hundred of the members of the church. And the members of the church they brought in for interrogation, and basically what they told each of the members of 
that church is your church is illegal. It is not a legally registered church in China, and therefore it is illegal for you to worship. And if you return and worship, if you continue to try and meet as part of this church, you will be put in criminal detention too, like we're holding your pastor and will continue to hold your pastor. And their pastor has no access to the outside and nobody can reach him or his wife. What would it look like if that happened here? What would it look like if it happened to any church in the United States where the culture had turned so much that on one Sunday you were rounded up and you were interrogated and you were asked, do you worship at Central Church? You claim to be a follower of Jesus? It's illegal. And if you continue to do that, if you continue to stand on those beliefs, you are going to be prosecuted and you are going to be put in prison. Your job will be taken away. You'll lose your house. Your children will be taken away. My guess is that would have a way of thinning out many of these shallow soil believers, maybe most believers in many churches. That is the heat of the sun bearing down in affliction or persecution because of the Word. And here's the reality that Jesus says, if our faith is only a shallow faith, if we have not developed the roots through the disciplines of discipleship, through being deep, becoming deeply rooted in the Word, by, by seeking and, and being sustained by worship, by coming together and being a true part of the body connected with each other, you know what? We are not going to survive that kind of persecution and affliction when it comes. And I believe it is coming. It may not look exactly like it looks in China, but I believe it is coming shallow soil believers will wither. They will dry up when they are tested by affliction or persecution. The third type of the the third type of soil in the parable is seen in verse 7. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it didn't produce a crop. And the interpretation of it he gives in verses 18 and 19. These are the ones who hear the word, but the worries of this age and the seduction of wealth and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So these are believers who the soil of their hearts, it does receive the word, but there are these thorns that are growing up. And and by the way, the seeds of these thorns, I, I believe, lie in the soil of each of our hearts. What's, he, he gives several kinds here. The, the first thorn is the thorn of the worries of this age. You know, you know, we all have some degree of anxiety and concern over, you know, am I going to have enough financially to sustain me and my family? And is my health going to be okay? Is the health of these people that I love going to be okay? Is this relational issue going to work out? I mean, you can think of all the natural things that in the course of a day we become concerned about. He's not saying here that, you know, any presence of any anxiety is sin. What he's saying is, is these can become thorns that choke out the Word. He's saying that there is a way in which we can say, you know, God, I just don't trust you with the control of my health or my finances or my relationship. I, I've got to hang on to that. And in doing so, it becomes like a thorn that grows up and and chokes out any concern or any thought of God because it becomes so big in our life. He says there's also the thorn of the seduction of wealth. And again, you know, we 
We want to have nice things. We want to have enough money to live on. But here he's saying there, there is a thorn that can grow in our life where we become caught up in the pursuit of money. We become caught up in how much we can earn and how much we can save and how much we can create of wealth. We become caught up in, in the possessions and the house, the cars that we want to buy or that we buy. It's a seduction. He, he represents it as we are seduced by the lies of this world, the lie that if you just have a little bit more, then you'll be happy, then you'll be content. And if you live any time in life, you know that whether you have very little or you have a great amount, that next little bit never, seek, never, never succeeds in satisfying that. It is, it is a lie, but we can be caught up in that. It can become a thorn that grows up huge in our life and chokes out the Word. And then there's another kind of thorn that he says, the desire for other things. And I'm, I'm thinking this is the catch-all that Jesus uses for all the other desires. That would include wrong desires. That would include my desire, your desire to have a relationship that's outside of the boundaries that God gives in His Word. That may be the desire for sensual experience. That may be the desire for inappropriate emotional experience. But not just wrong desires, it even includes, I think, the desires for legitimate things, to want to be loved, to want to be secure when we take those desires and we make them preeminent in our lives, when we put them above our desire to seek the Lord Jesus and live for Him. So you think of all these thorns and really a a heart that is consumed by one or more of these thorns we could call a distracted heart. And Jesus says that these distractions, these thorns, they won't necessarily kill the growing plant of of faith in your life, but they're going to choke it. They're going to absorb the energy and the devotion that He wants you to direct towards Him. And the result of that choking, the result of all those distractions is your spiritual growth, my spiritual growth is stunted. And we become, He says, unfruitful. We he says, fail to produce a crop. We don't develop our spiritual gifts. That's part of what it means to be unfruitful. We don't accomplish, Ephesians 2.10, the good works that God prepared beforehand, before He even saved us for us to do that we might walk in them. That's part of what it means to become unfruitful. We don't spiritually reproduce. We're not sharing our faith. We're not helping others grow. All of this is what it means to fail to produce a crop. And that happens when these thorns, these concerns, these desires choke out the Word in our life. The fourth type of soil is seen in verse 8. Still others fell on good ground and produced a crop that increased 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown. And he says in verse 20, these are the people who hear the word, welcome it, and produce a crop 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown. Now, here's the good news this morning. Wherever you are, however you're testing the soil of your heart this morning, when the hardness of our heart is plowed up by God's gracious activity in our lives, when we've been pushed by what is God is doing in our lives, to, to, to seek more than shallow, superficial feelings, to punch down through that shallow soil. 
when we experience at God's hand the pruning, the weeding of the thorns, the distractions of this world, then the soil of our hearts can become receptive and it become fertile and bear fruit. And notice what Jesus says clearly is the defining mark of this kind of heart. It is not whether they have lots of Scripture memorized. It's not whether they're well-dressed. It's not whether they know, you know, all the proper behaviors of church. No, it is spiritual fruit-bearing. It is bearing fruit. It is not the green leaves of the plant. It is whether that plant bears fruit. And spiritual fruit-bearing, I think, has several senses. There's the sense of Galatians 5, that I'm growing in the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All are developing more and more in my life. I think spiritual fruit-bearing as well is learning what our spiritual gifts are and ministering with our spiritual gifts. And of course, Spiritual fruit bearing includes sharing the, the, the word, faith in Christ with others, being used by God to lead others to faith in Christ, and helping others to grow in Christ. The mark of spiritual maturity is spiritual fruit bearing. Well, at this point, maybe you're doing a soil test in your life. You know, I was trying to grow a garden in one place we were live, and the soil was really bad, so. At the advice of the local extension office, I went out and I bought this little soil test kit, you know, and you, you, you use this little test kit to determine how, you know, how bad is your soil, how acidic or, or alkaline is your soil. I mean, maybe you're doing that right now. Maybe you're comparing yourself to these different soils. Or, or worse, maybe you're comparing somebody else that you're thinking of and doing a soil test on them as you hear about these soils. Can I say this? These soil conditions are not static conditions in our lives or the life of someone you may love. In other words, a person isn't trapped, and this is the soil they're going to be all of their life. I agree with Ray Stedman that these, that these are conditions of the heart that at any given moment we may be experiencing as we hear the Word. Whenever the Word is proclaimed and we hear it or we see it. Our hearts are in one or another of these kinds of soil. We can all be hardened as we hear the Word. No matter how mature in your faith is, there can be areas of hardness in your heart. We all can be emotionally shallow as we hear the Word. We certainly all can be distracted by thorns of desires in our lives. And by the grace of God, by His plowing, digging down, uh, weeding work in our life, we can be receptive and we can be fertile. So what determines the condition of the soil? Jesus makes it clear, I believe. And I think this we see even in how He does something in this parable. I don't see Him do in any other parable. If you look at the diagram that's coming up on the screen, the parable itself is bracketed by two commands of Jesus. In verse 3, before he begins the parable, he, he commands us, listen. And then in verse 9, as soon as he's done telling the parable, he again commands us, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Listen and hear are the same basic word. They're the same, they come from the same Greek root there. He is commanding us to listen. He is commanding us to hear. So, 
here is what determines how you hear even the truth this morning and how you hear the truth of the Word whenever it is proclaimed. How you hear the Word, how you listen to the Word determines whether it is going to penetrate the soil of your heart. Look at, uh, look at two. Let me compare two. The hardened soil of verse 15 and the distracted soil of verse 18. You can see right there, both of them, people who, who represent this kind of soil, they hear the Word, but nothing more. They hear the Word. You know, the experience of audibly hearing a message doesn't mean that we get it, that we understand it, that we receive it, does it? Some of you are sitting here and you are hearing my words, and your thoughts are at lunch or what you're going to do this afternoon or a thousand miles away. You, you are audibly hearing, but you are not receiving the Word, and, and that certainly happens to us all the time. We can hear just hearing by itself does not mean the message is getting through. But we see a step further in what Jesus says about shallow soil hearts in verse 16. Notice, they hear the Word and they receive the Word. There is some initial response. I remember the first time I heard the Word. I heard the clear gospel presentation of what Jesus did for me at the cross. I was 13 years old. I was at a a junior high church retreat. It was an emotional experience, and I remember having an emotional response to hearing that. And that was good, and I believe God used that as the beginning. But you know what? For many years, nothing happened because it didn't go any deeper than that emotional experience. So while this is an improvement, there is some response to it. It is not enough. It is not really until we get to the picture in verse 20 where Jesus shows us how it is that He wants us to truly hear His Word. Notice the one sown on good ground are those who hear the Word, and they welcome the Word, and they produce a crop. Welcoming. Welcoming is, is, in other words, when, when, when we hear the, the, the truth, whether it's the gospel message, whether it's something else from the Word of God, welcome is, is when, even if what we hear makes us uncomfortable, even if what we hear challenges us, we want to listen to it because we trust that it's actually God's Word that is coming to us, the God who loves us, the God who sent His Son to us. And so even if it's uncomfortable, we welcome it. We open ourselves to it. And, and welcoming implies that we reflect on what it means. And we, we spend time reflecting, thinking on, then what are the implications for my life? How does this change the way I think and I feel and I speak and I act? Welcoming implies that I even want to go a step further and I repent. I turn away from behaviors and thoughts and attitudes that are counter to that. And, and I actually seek to put this now into practice into my life. And as we hear the Word and we welcome it in those ways, Jesus says, we produce a crop. We bear fruit. This is what Jesus presents as really the full cycle of growth in the kingdom of God. It's not just hearing. It's not just hearing and, and receiving it, having an emotional experience. It is hearing the Word. It is welcoming the Word in that sense, and it is producing a crop. That is what full, mature growth looks like 
in the kingdom of God. So let me leave you with two questions as I close this morning. The first goes back to if you are doing a soil test on your own heart, what is happening in your life right now that might be God plowing, that might be God digging down, that might be God pruning or weeding the soil of your heart? See, wherever you are this morning, wherever we are, because I'm included in this, there are places in our hearts that are probably hard. There are places in our, lo- our hearts that are probably shallow. There are places in our hearts that are probably riddled with thorns. And God in his love for us does not want to leave us at that place. And so he graciously allows circumstances and people to be used to, to do that plowing He may be using painful circumstances, painful messages, challenging messages that you are hearing in your life right now to plow up the hardened soil where your heart is hard to his truth. He may be using those kinds of things to dig through. Maybe you've been fairly shallow in some or all areas of your faith, and he wants to puncture through the limestone. He may be using hard circumstances in your life to weed out those distractions to prune out those desires of the flesh and of the world. And none of this is because he's an angry God seeking to punish. This is all because he's a loving God, a loving Father, wanting to do in his love what is best for you and best for me. So there's a question to examine this morning. Let me leave you with the last question. If you know Christ as Savior and Lord, if you've responded to the word Where are you sowing the seed right now in in your life? Again, that is the expectation. The sower, Jesus, models and is the example for us. Remember, it's a continual action that we are here on this earth until he returns to keep sowing. Where are you sowing? There are many opportunities during this Christmas season to sow seed if you recognize them and respond to them. There are family members you're going to be together with maybe in nine days or whenever Christmas is that, uh, you know, those family members are, are hardened to the gospel or they have only a shallow faith or whatever it may be. You have an opportunity with them. Or maybe it's coworkers or maybe it's neighbors. Maybe you think, like I've often been tempted to think, I've had that conversation with that uncle or that cousin or that that brother or sister so many times. They're just so hard to it. Remember that the sower was not discouraged by the conditions of the soil. He didn't say, oh, that's thorny soil. I'm not wasting any seed there. That's hardened soil. I'm not casting any seed there. He freely, she freely cast out, sowed the seed over all those conditions of soil. Why? Believing that it isn't the sower that makes things grow. It is God who makes things grow. It is God who produces the crop. And that's the encouragement I'd give to all of us this Christmas season. When you're tempted to be discouraged and not cast the seed, remember the the words of, of Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 come to mind. It's our responsibility to plant, to sow the seed. Or maybe we have an opportunity to water seed that someone else has sown, that someone else has planted. That's our responsibility. We're not responsible for the growth. God is responsible for the growth. God is the one who makes things grow. 
What is God doing in your life this morning that may be plowing, that may be digging, that may be weeding? Where are you sowing today, this Christmas season? Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, again, we're amazed by you and your teaching. We're so thankful, Lord Jesus, you gave us the example of what it means to sow and how to do that. I I love how relational you are, Jesus, and uh, how you speak the truth in ways that, that touch people, how you see people where they at their point of need and you respond to that. May we follow your example and your model. Lord, I I pray for us uh, as you convict us this morning of the hard places in our hearts. I I pray that you and your goodness and your love would use even what's difficult in our life right now to plow up those hard places. And Lord, I, I, I pray for those of us who are maybe struggling with a shallowness. We're not feeling it. We're not experiencing it. Lord, I pray that even in that, in the the vacuum that we may be feeling, that you are digging down so that we can plant roots that will sustain us in harder, difficult circumstances where we have to, our faith comes at a cost. And Lord, I, I pray for those of us who we know we're wrestling with certain thorns in our life, certain desires that that are truly choking out our energy and our devotion for you. Lord, we pray that you would do this plowing, digging, weeding work in our lives, that our hearts, the soil of our hearts, would be fertile, would be receptive, that we would produce fruit. We pray this, Jesus, in your name and for your glory. Amen.